All right, so welcome to brunch. Welcome to brunch. Whose turn is it? I think it's mine. To our spooky murder First, brunch. First, uh, are we recording? Mm-hmm. We are indeed recording. Not saying that we've had incidents where we weren't. Well, we have had incidents, <laughs> but we don't discuss those. All right. All right. Welcome to murder brunch. We are the murder brunch bunch. I'm Joe. I'm Rachel. I'm Clinton. This is the podcast that brings you two tales of mayhem and murder and discuss where a killer lies on Dr. Michael Stone's scale of evil. Perfection. Today we're going to do it in a spooky way. <laughs> Not really. Yes, happy Halloween, <laughs> listeners. And in light of our Halloween episode, it feels like everything we're eating today is orange. Just about. Yes, <laughs> I... Had I had time, I would have done some Brussels sprouts along with the butternut squash just to cut the orange with a little green. Never. never. But no. But we have a we have a pumpkin cream roll. We have French toast. We have butternut maple glazed butternut maple squash, glazed which are very squash. good. I'm not usually a butternut squash fan, but these are actually pretty tasty. And then chicken sausage? Yes. Okay. Like a red pepper chicken sausage. And Clinton made our cocktails today. Clinton, tell us about these cocktails. Okay. So since this is our Halloween episode, mm-hmm. I wanted the cocktail to be themed. So the name of this cocktail is the zombie. Ooh. There are three <laughs> kinds of rums. Wow. A variety of fruit juices, including pineapple, passion fruit, lemon, and lime. Dash of bitters. How did you have all this stuff on hand? We had everything except the juices. Wow. And the black rum. And the black rum. I had to go get that. And when you, I saved the day. When, <laughs> when you say we, you mean Burger Brunch. Like we had collected so many liquors that we had everything. Yes. Ready to go. Now the gold rum, I think, was my own and not purchased previously for this. What is yours? Is ours, Clinton? That's what I always say. We made that agreement when we did that occult ceremony. A lot of blood in that. <laughs> a lot of blood. A lot of blood. And pumpkins. It was really weird. <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> but these cocktails are great. They're very fruity. So yeah, so today's episode is a little off kilter. If you're a faithful listener, Joe is actually doing our first story twice in a row. Sorry, get over it. <laughs> but mainly because she has someone on hers that we're gonna we're gonna put on the scale. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. And then mine is more of an unsolved mystery. Ooh. So, and then if you're interested, Clinton also did a Halloween story, but you can only listen to it if you sign up for our Patreon. So for five dollars a month. You get an additional story from Clinton every month. Drink themed, recipes. Themed according to our drink, by the way. Yes, of course. Um, oh. oh really? Drink recipes, extra pictures, random audio clips, all kinds of stuff. So. But you do get a detailed recipe on how to make this drink, yeah. the zombie. Yeah. So, very good. Very good. Shall we go ahead and get started? Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's dive right in. So my story is the Greenbrier ghost, or the only case in history in which a ghost's testimony helped convict a killer. I love it already. (laughs) The time, 1873. Of course. The place, Greenbrier (laughs) County in West Virginia. I was really hoping you'd be like, 1993. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the only case in America history, in U.S. history, where ghost testimony, or is this worldwide? Probably American history, but okay. I don't know. I've never heard of like an official. Because I mean, what they probably there has been people who have been murdered at the you know justification yeah. that a ghost told me they did it. Uh-huh. But, I mean, I don't know if it, it's an official jury sentencing. Got it. 
All right, so Elva Zona Hester. I think it's Hester. Hester? Hester. Probably Hester. Also, okay. I love the name Zona. Yes. And that's what everybody called her. Oh. Okay. Weird. So, so just a random aside, uh-huh. a place I grew up has a mansion in it, was owned by a woman named Zona. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I got to know her and went to play piano for her in her Aww. creepy mansion. You're, you have a creepy childhood. Really it does. I want to be there. Play piano that. for the creepy lady in her mansion. <laughs> play it again, Clinton. <laughs> All right, so Elva Zona Hester was born to Mary Jane Robinson Hester in 1873. Right, right, Rebecca. Not much is known about her early life, but in October of 1896, when she was 23 years old, Zona meets the new guy in town. Mm. The new guy in town. (laughs) Cut that. We don't have copyright. He was a drifter, a blacksmith, and noted among the local ladies as quite handsome. I bet he was. Yep. The blacksmiths. Mm-hmm. All muscly. And sweaty. Oh, by the way, this is a, a, a story that's full of amazing names. His name was Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. Love it. Oh, my God. Erasmus, Erasmus Shoe. Everybody called him... Raz? Trout. Okay. Oh, gross. <laughs> You have all of that, and you go, I'd rather be stribbling. <laughs> Call me stribbling. Uh, he had uh, come to Greenbrier County for a new start, as people did back then, and soon found work at a local blacksmith shop of James Crookshanks. Crookshanks. Not a cat name. It is a cat name, <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> he was a cat, Clinton. That's the twist at the end. <laughs> a cat blacksmith. <laughs> I need to make that happen. Tiny, little tiny hammers. Yeah, t- tiny tools and a little fire. So anyway, uh, Trout started to make a name for himself with the quality of his work. Zona met Trout soon after he arrived to town, and the two were instantly attracted to each other. And though Zona's mother, Mary, was not shy to express her immense dislike and distrust <laughs> of him, the two decided to marry. She's got money though, right? Zona's got money. Oh, Zona doesn't no. have money? Okay. No. I think I'm going to confuse you with uh, Mansion Zona of <laughs> yeah. Clinton's childhood. Okay. On the morning of January 23rd, 1897, just several months, I think it was three months after Zona and Trout's wedding, a young boy named Andy Jones, who was 11, was walking through town when he was called over to Crookshank's shop. Trout told Andy to run to his house and ask the new Mrs. Shoe if there was anything she needed from the shop. Okay. Andy did as he was told, but as he entered the house calling for Zona, he came upon a terrible sight. Mm, poor Andy. He found Zona's body at the bottom of the stairs. Here is a description of what he saw. She was stretched out with her feet together. One hand was on her abdomen and the other was lying next to her. Her head was turned slightly to one side, and her eyes were wide open and staring. She tripped, clearly. Clearly. That's how you land at the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> Feet together, arms resting. <laughs> and Andy was 11? That sucks. Andy was 11. Even the 1800s, that sucks. Oh, well, yeah. Are you, it's probably the fourth dead woman he's I seen know, in right? his life. <laughs> After Mama. <laughs> <laughs> None of them have parents. I've heard the dollop. (laughs) But speaking of, Andy, being a child, totally freaked out and ran to his mother. 
Good on Andy. Um, She's the, alive. Yeah. The local... <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Woo! All right. The local doctor slash coroner, Dr. George <laughs> W. Knapp, with a K. Of course. But still, Dr. Knapp. Dr. Dr. Knapp. That's just one step away from... I get them before they die, I get them after they die, I do everything. I got a PhD in napping. It's <laughs> just one step away from Dr. Sleep, just mm-hmm. saying. <laughs> He was notified, but it took him almost an hour to arrive to the house. By that time, Trout had been told of the tragedy that his wife had fallen down the stairs and had rushed home himself. Trout had taken Zona's body upstairs and changed her clothes and laid her in bed all before the doctor even arrived. Uh Uh-huh. Good job, Trout. Real nice. He's in mourning. No. We all react to death in a different way. I don't trust Trout. I the most suspicious that the, of the fish. <laughs> there's no way the handsome blacksmith is the one that did no it. No way. No way. It's obviously the 11 year old. What, what was? Yeah. What, what was Andy's alibi? Just oh, someone told me to go pick up some stuff. Really. I'm gonna make a bunch of noise. So he found. You know, he did all this crap, and that was very strange, as it was completely against local custom. Traditionally, the ladies of the community would wash and dress the dead. But Dr. Knapp found Zona already dressed in her finest clothing, a high-necked, stiff-collared dress and a veil over her face. The doctor proceeded to examine the body, but he found it very difficult, as Trout was there the whole time cradling Zona's head and hysterically crying. (laughs) Anytime Dr. Knapp got close to her neck or head, Trout would react so violently that it made it impossible to continue. Mm-hmm. I'm getting vibes from the scary stories telling the dark of the woman with the ribbon around her neck. I can't take it off. All I can think of is like him he's like really like rocking and crying and stuff like that. And he kind of just comes away with her head. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that did not happen. No. So... Because it was impossible to continue, like any 1890s doctor, Dr. Knapp threw his hands up and said, F this shit. <laughs> and though he had noticed some bruising around the neck area, he determined Zona's cause of death was everlasting faint. <laughs> and then later... You faint forever? <laughs> I think it was actually a term that they used for a heart attack. Oh, okay. But then he later changed it to childbirth, though there was no evidence that Zona was ever pregnant. That one's a little strange. However, for the two weeks prior to her death, the good doctor was treating her for, quote, female troubles. Mm. Hmm. So, like, she was pregnant and hadn't told Trout yet, or? No, I think they just were saying bullshit. Okay. I don't think she was pregnant at all. Because I think, like, her mom might have, would know. Right. Or, as a doctor, I think that you would know. Did he give her a shitty abortion? And that's, and that's what he's like, mm, I didn't do that right. And she died from that. No, I think they're just making up shit. Okay. He didn't even perform the the body examination, like, thoroughly. So he was just like, eh, she's a woman. She had babies and, and she died. Right. But she never had a baby. So there was no, like, blood or anything like that. So maybe he didn't know what childbirth actually entails. <laughs> I don't know. He's a doctor and a coroner, Julie. Don't be mean about it. (laughs) All right, go ahead. Give the man respect. Mm -hmm. Though the news of Zona's death spread quickly, the Hester family lived remotely outside of the town proper, so rioters had to be sent out to notify her parents. When Mary was told of her daughter's accident, she said, quote, the devil has killed her, end quote. Why? 
Because she knew something. What did she know? That her son-in-law was a dick. I assume there's more to the story. Or it could have been the that end. golden fiddle <laughs> that was found at the location. A golden fiddle was found. What's this? It's so heavy and it sounds terrible. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> On Saturday, January 24th, Zona's body was delivered via funeral procession to her parents. Trout came along, always keeping a stoic and devoted vigil at the head of the coffin. As custom, there was a wake all day Sunday with a constant stream of visitors, and the burial was on Monday. Those at the wake noted Trout's odd behavior. He had wild mood swings ranging from manic, uncontrolled energy to inconsolable grief. He would not allow anyone to get too close to the coffin. He did strange actions such as placing a pillow and rolled up cloth on either side of her head to, quote, help her rest easier, and wrapping a scarf around her neck Sobbing that it had been Zona's favorite. Oh, please. This behavior and the fact that there had been a marked, quote, looseness, <sighs> end quote, to the head whenever the coffin was moved. She's like jiggling around. Yeah. Uh, caused... Put the cloth in there. It should be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just pack it in. Where's the styrofoam? <laughs> All that caused quite the gossip and speculation to spread. Mary Jane Hester did not have time for suspicion. She flat out knew that Trout had killed her daughter, but had no way of proving it. After the funeral, Mary experienced what she described as an omen. She had taken the sheet from the coffin to wash, which I'm like, just throw it away. Yeah, why would you? Or like, like throw it into the, you know, the the pit or wherever you're putting your daughter. Right, like, I mean, well, I guess, you know, they don't have the money to have a lot of sheets, but still, I I don't want a coffin sheet. This is still good for more dead people. Yeah, Okay. (laughs) As she washed it, she first noticed a strange smell. Mm. And it's called dead people. Well, (laughs) maybe to them, that's not strange. I guess not, all right. And then the water turned red. Mm. Then the sheet turned pink, and the water went back to normal. Okay. And even though she boiled the sheet, the pink blood-like stain never went away. Mary took this as a sign that Zona had indeed been murdered. Okay. I think maybe somebody like swapped your, your detergent. Yeah. Or something left like something that. in the wash bucket. I don't know. Oh, my red sweater. Oh, shit. <laughs> it looked like red hat. pink underwear. <laughs> Um, so she started to pray. She prayed for four weeks every day that her daughter would return and reveal what really happened to her. And then it happened. Mm. This is where it gets spooky. Grief is hard. Zona appeared to Mary by her bedside, at first coming as a ball of light and then manifesting into an apparition. She explained that Trout Shoe had been an abusive husband and had killed her in a fit of rage when he had thought that she neglected to cook any meat for dinner. Damn, Trout. (laughs) Where's my meat? I'm going to get to it later. I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Right? Just when he thought, he just thought that. Yeah. Also, it's not dinner time. Yeah, it was in the morning. Yeah. Give the woman a break. Ugh. Anyway, uh, she said that Trout had broken her neck, and then the ghost proved this by turning her head completely around. (laughs) The same vision appeared to Mary for four nights. I mean, like, is Mary not believing her? And she's like, prove it. 
I'm going to come back four nights in a row. No, I'm going to turn my head around. Watch this. (laughs) (laughs) And then spit pea pea soup, right? Yeah. All right. So she took the new information to the local prosecutor, John Alfred Preston. She somehow, after hours of conversation, convinced Preston to reopen the case using the ghost's testimony as evidence. Deputies were sent to interview Dr. Knapp and others involved. Preston spoke to Dr. Knapp himself, and when the details of his examination came to light, they both decided that it was incomplete, duh, and (laughs) a full autopsy was needed. On February 22nd, 1897, they exhumed her body and performed the autopsy at a nearby school. Don't worry, the children were sent home for the day. (laughs) Troutshu was sure to make everyone know that he was totally against it, saying, quote, they will never be able to prove I did it, end quote, which seems suspicious. They'll never be able to prove I did it. Versus, I didn't (laughs) didn't do it. Uh, they don't call him Trout for nothing. He's a genius. The autopsy lasted for three hours, but since it was a freezing February, her body was, quote, in near state of perfect preservation, end quote. At the autopsy was a jury of five men, officers of the court, Trout Shoe, poor Andy Jones, and other... (laughs) I know, leave him alone. He needs to go to school. He does. He's well, probably at school. school. Yeah, he's the last one. He's like, all my friends got dismissed for the day and I got chill. Mm-hmm. Chill. <laughs> <laughs> and other witnesses and some people who were desperate for entertainment. Jeez. The results were quite clear. Zona's neck had indeed been broken and her windpipe crushed. Yikes. Trout Shoe was immediately arrested for murder, even though there really wasn't any concrete evidence against him. Now, was there a free-floating, full-body, vaporous apparition present for the jury? Not, not that anyone could see. Okay. Written testimony only. <laughs> While in jail, Trout's past came to everyone's attention. He had previously been married two other times. Mm. His first wife was Ellie Esteline Cutlet, to which he had a child. But when he was arrested for horse stealing in 1889, she filed for divorce, stating that he had been violent during their marriage and frequently beat her. In 1894, he married Lucy Ann Tritt, who died only eight months after their wedding under mysterious circumstances. Before he could fully be investigated for that, Trout simply packed up and left town, moving to Greenbrier County, where he met Zona. Right. While in jail, Trout claimed his innocence, but also said he had a lifelong ambition to have seven wives. No, oh, jeez. I don't know where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> He's a real idiot. Was a, when did seven brides for seven brothers come out? <laughs> Not in the 1800s. <laughs> based uh, on the 1800s, though. Well, it's based on him. Yeah. <laughs> his trial began on June 22nd, 1897. And though there were many that testified against him, Mary Hester was the star witness. The prosecution at first did not make mention of the ghost as to not make Zona's mom seem like a lunatic. (laughs) But the defense went right after it. But it completely backfired. They all believed in ghosts. Yeah. Mary had proven herself so trustworthy and completely sane that no matter how much the defense pushed her, she stuck to her guns about the ghost, and it didn't seem like anyone was questioning her reliability. (laughs) 
The jury found Trout Shoe guilty of murder. Ten of the jury voted to have him hanged, but that decision had to be unanimous. So he was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. The community was not completely satisfied, and a group of 15 to 30 men formed a lynching mob. Wow. But the sheriff was tipped off, and they were able to hide him before the mob showed up. Because he's still an outsider. I mean, he just came to their town, yeah. you know. The drifter. Yeah. But he was so handsome. <laughs> Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe died on March 13th, 1900, from an epidemic and buried in an unmarked grave. Mary Jane Hester died in September of 1916 without ever recanting or changing her story. So her mom lived 16 years after that dude. So, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, I mean, he was convicted. So I guess we can say that we're going to put him on the scale. Yeah. But let's, <coughs> let's be honest, right? Did she see a ghost? Probably not. Right. However... Everybody knew he did it. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, what are we going to do? And Zona's mom's like, well, fuck this. I'm going to say a ghost came to me and told me in, right? Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too, is it's got to be something like that. If the coroner had just done his job and said, Erasmus, trout, get the fuck out of the way so I can check in the neck, then this would have been all solved much earlier. Or at least they would have had physical evidence as well. Well. Early. He was a large strong man it might have been very difficult what you want to kill me too yeah probably i'm a coroner dr nap <laughs> i'm dr nap come at me all right so let's talk about the scale the scale of dr michael h stone incredible criminal psychologist oh and happy birthday michael stone oh that's right october 27th right yeah that's right but yes, the scale we're referring to is his scale of evil, which he talks about in The Anatomy of Evil, available on Amazon.com. And it ranges on 22 levels of evil, starting with category one. Justifiable homicide. Going all the way up to category 22. Psychopathic torture murders with torture as their primary motive. The motive need not always be sexual. I feel like for Trout here... It's going to be jealous lovers. No, I guess not jealous lovers. No, what would it be? Hot headed. Jealous of the meat? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hot uh, I headed impulse. Or rageful because. I mean, he has a history of beating women. Yeah. Impetuous, hot headed murders, yet without marked psychopathic traits. I don't think he was psychopathic. I think he came in a time where it was lawful often to. Oh, yeah. I think he was just, you know, doing choice. what he was doing. What's the rage one? Uh, murders sparked by smoldering rage, resulting sometimes in mass murder. No, nope. no. What, is, what about the loved ones? He loved nobody. I don't know. I mean, I think I think he might have loved these women. He just, you know, couldn't control <clears throat> his anger. I think he loved himself. Yeah, I agree with that. So, well, that kind of plays into that one. So it's a category seven. Highly narcissistic persons, some with a psychotic core, who murder loved ones. I don't think he was a psycho, though. I think he was just a product of his times. I think the first one is... Impetuous, hot-headed murder? The big difference being that category there from two to six is about impulsive murders in people without psychopathic features. Yeah. The next one, the highly narcissistic one, is the first one where you get some psychopathic traits. Right. Like, I don't think the plan was involved. I think he's just like, this pisses me off. I'm going to react with a fist. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If If it was planned... He is the stupidest man to yeah. ever exist, right? Because he did not 
plan it well. Right. He even tried to hide it very well. Also, so like, so so walking through what this must have been. So he was off at the blacksmithery, came home and killed his wife, or had killed her that no, morning. No, I think killed her that morning. Went to work and then said, "Andy, go." He needed someone else to find the body before him. Right. Because he was probably unsure of how what his reaction would be if it would be appropriate. Oh well, yeah, I guess it would have put to be like he suspicion. saw her that morning when he left. Yeah. Right. And so then he sends some random child off the street to go find his dead right. wife. Because that was the first person he came across or whatever. Right. At well, the body it's possible, of the Because, you know, probably that kid ran errands for everybody and stuff like that. Yeah. What I don't get is it's like, so he went through this all this elaborate funeral stuff to make sure no one looked at her neck or whatever. But people break their neck falling downstairs. Like. True. I think, you know what it is, though? It may not have been just broken neck. It might have had, like, finger bruises. Right. Yeah, Along I mean, with the crushed esophagus. Yeah. yeah. There was bruising. But the doctor was like, oh, that looks like bruising. And then he's like, no, don't look at her. He's like, okay. <laughs> Must so, be yeah. my mistake. I think it was all just 1800s cover-up. Right. But yeah, so, uh, all right, so we're putting trout shoes there's, on. There's bruising on her neck. She must have had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was going, I wonder what that relationship was. How did a... Everyone died from childbirth, so they're just like, we're just... Blacksmith convinced the doctor to like... No, I think it was just a shit doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like, whatever. He, he had an hour's worth of work before coming to see the dead body anyway. So. He was probably drunk. All right, so trout shoe. Number six. Oh. oh, next to Piggy Sue. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you say. So by the transitive properties of psychopathy, <laughs> he is a pig. <laughs> he is a yeah, pig. Yeah, I would say so. He is a pig. All right, we're ready for story two? I'm ready. You ready? I am ready. Okay, so our second story today is about someone kind of famous tangentially. Yeah. Say that word again. I can't. I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce it. I've been <laughs> drinking. Um, okay. <clears throat> they are boozy. So we're talking about the murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman. This sounds familiar. Yeah. I know you're going to know who it is as soon as I really get into it. Okay. So Ronald was 39 and Elizabeth was 19 and they were dating. Um, he was a photographer. Oh. She was a model. That kind of thing. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they were having a date. Halloween night, 1981. Uh, at his apartment, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the spooky part. At his apartment, they were drinking wine and doing a little photo shoot, you know, that kind of thing. He was, that's, I guess, what they do when they hang out. Bringing work into the bedroom. <laughs> Allegedly, there was a group of masked strangers who knocked on his door, and when he refused to answer, they started banging on the door. And so he's like, "I'm gonna go ahead." And I've seen this the movie. Door. Yeah. The next morning, cut to the next morning. Ronald and Elizabeth are found beaten and shot execution style in his home with a 25 caliber pistol. So that's little, right? That's a little gun. I don't know much about that. 22 is small. 22 is small. And it's not a 38, which is... 25. Yeah, that's what it said. They were beaten terribly. Like, they they might have died from those wounds by themselves, but then they were both shot in the head. And I believe he was shot four times and she was shot thrice. It's a lot of shots. They were making sure these people were going to die. Yeah, that's thorough. The apartment was ransacked, and it was so trash that cops couldn't help stepping on stuff as they moved around. So the first theory is drugs. Previously, an actress named Melanie Haller had accused Ronald of forcing her to take drugs, and when she refused, he became belligerent. She refused to work with investigators, so the charges were eventually dropped. But 
they could not find any immediate links for Ronald and drugs. Like, there was nothing in his apartment. There was nothing like that. And Melanie Haller did the same thing against a movie producer, and those charges were dropped, too. So this might have been just her MO of... Don't mess with me. I'll tell people you did drugs. Yeah, trying to trying to cut a deal or something like that. They couldn't find any immediate connection with him, with any drug dealers for Ronald Sussman or anything like that. And like I said, there were no drugs found in his apartment. But the cops kept that as as like a, a back burner theory that maybe there's something there. Then a prison informant came forward and said he knew someone who predicted the murders. Okay. And that was David Berkowitz, son of Sam. Ugh. So. The theory is, this is very popular these days because a Netflix documentary just came out, that Son of Sam did not act alone. He was actually part of a satanic cult. And there is, depending on who you are, a compelling documentary that it's called like Sons of Sam or something like that. I watched it and I I did find it compelling, but not the satanic cult angle. What what part? The part that, because there's a theory... That David Berkowitz actually wasn't the killer, but two brothers that he yes. hung out with, <clears throat> right, were, and um, they looked similar to like one of the police sketches. And yeah, the- and and in the letter he, he said it's the the sons of Sam, yeah, sons of Sam, and those two boys or those two guys, their dad's name was actually Sam, right? You know, and so yeah, and there was this whole question that all the police sketches of, of the time Berkowitz is uh, just because I don't know how well you know son of Sam Clinton. Uh I know there's a line from an Offspring song, sure. Son of Sam, Fire Always Makes It Better. No, that's not what we're talking about. He was, I believe, uh, and see, this is why I didn't want to put Berkowitz on the scale, because that's not what we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. But he he was eventually charged with killing like seven people and injuring five more or something like that. He went around and shooting people in their cars. Right. And his dog made him to- and his dog. Yes. And this whole yeah. satanic cult thing is not a new theory. This was going on when he got arrested as well, that he wasn't acting alone. He was kind of like... Well, like like a dog for a cult that he was going around doing murders in their name and stuff. But it like was that. like the beginning of the uh, satanic panic right. and everything like that. Everything was a satanic cult. So, according to Berkowitz, though, and this police informant who snitched on him, Berkowitz supposedly knew that there was going to be a ritualistic murder of a photographer on Halloween night by his cult, fellow cult members. That this was them performing some kind of ritual. The story goes that Ronald had been hired to film a snuff film by the cult, but didn't know what he had been hired for. Specifically, because he was a photographer and he did film and stuff like that, he was filming Berkowitz's last victim, Stacy Moskowitz, filming her murder. When he figured out what he was hired to do, he was furious and he threatened to expose the cult by showing the video to the authorities. And so they decided to ritualistically kill him and take the video back. And his apartment had been broken into previously, where I believe his gun was stolen that time. And so he had to get another gun permit to get another gun. And this last time when they found his body, they couldn't find his new gun there either. So he thought someone was targeting him, which could be a case. It could be completely not Berkowitz related and he was still being targeted by somebody. Mm -hmm. So there's that. When police talked to Berkowitz, he provided an accurate description of Ronald's apartment which is pretty weird. Mm-hmm. But friends and family, family said that Ronald had never dealt with anyone named David Berkowitz and never known him. Because, you know, people don't lie about their names. Or been part my, of any satanic cult, by the way. My <laughs> family doesn't know every person I interact oh, with. Oh, sure, sure. Also, if you had taken part in video recording a snuff film, you may not tell people about it. Like, I don't know. One of the things that supposedly 
like cinch the deal for these for this theory is that their licenses have been stolen, Elizabeth's and Ronald's. And this is a supposed practice of cults to prove they had killed the right people. They take the licenses back to the cult leaders and skepticism, skepticism, because as far as proving who it was. So, and their license were missing. What an interesting, like, it's a satanic cult and they're dealing with black magic and all these things and, and ritualistic murders and stuff like that. And they're like, but we need that license. <laughs> it's got yeah. a cross check on my Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, more importantly, despite being very high profile and maybe even linked with Berkowitz and everything, no one was ever arrested in the murders of Platzman and Sisman, Ronald and Elizabeth. So that's the that's the most interesting part to me, though, is that they never were able to find out who killed them. And yeah. that's I, I know it's very short, but that's uh, that's my story. But these this is the kind of case that. Because it was in the 70s, right? It's like if it had been done not even that far along past that time where they knew that to collect certain things for DNA, if they would have been able to solve it. Yeah. I mean, you never know, right? Because at that point, they weren't collecting DNA. Right. And the the apartment was so trashed. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it would have been hard to tell what was important and what wasn't. Yeah. I mean, like, at that point in the 70s, they probably didn't even have, like, a forensic team. They would have had fingerprints. They would have had fingerprints. They probably would have had, like, hair comparison. But I forget how, like, at what time. Because it was um, the the Golden State Killer that actually was, like, the impetus for a lot of police departments to have a specifically dedicated forensic team. Right. So the reason I chose this story was because it hit a lot of buttons as far as having a connection to Son of Sam and satanic cults and they died on Halloween night and all of this stuff. So it does have a weird and the and the story of having someone in mask a group of people in masks at their door. Yeah. Like Where that, did that come from? It was in an article I read, so I'm not sure if it was provided by a witness or something like that, or maybe it was a little liberty of the person who was writing. I don't know. But it seemed very odd. And the fact that they they were never able to solve it despite it having so much interest in it so much public interest so much dedicated police time to it yeah there's definitely uh a number of movies that like that's the whole setup right it is a weird one and you said it was 1981 yeah so yeah that was like you're saying the whole uh dungeons and dragons is the devil and yeah like Mm -hmm. it is absolutely like I mean, not the devil. It's it's the start of the satanic <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, of course, Berkowitz would be a great one for us to put on the scale. But this is only one supposed case, which may not even have been related to him, right. which is only yeah. supposedly related and to him. So. Berkowitz and the theories that surround him, you know, could take up a whole episode. Yeah. Probably several. Yeah. So that was our short but sweet Halloween episode. We're going to do Clinton's story, but it's going to be on Patreon. So you're not going to be able to hear it unless you give us $5 a month. Sources. All right. My sources come from the AmericanHauntingsInc.com, the Huffington Post, and AppalachianHistory.net or AppalachianHistory.net. Please correct us. Uh, and my sources were Medium.com and The New Yorker. All right. I guess join us next time for more mayhem. More murder. More snacks. Bye. Bye.